Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Sina Basilahickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with excerpts from the Troy mayoral debate that took place on Tuesday, October 3rd. Then, Mark Dunley reports on 120 groups urging Governor Hochul to support 100% renewable, renewable capital energy. Renewable capital. Later on, Rachel Lorimer and Justin, Justin Relf of Oakwood, Oakwood Community Center join us to talk about the upcoming community celebration and art show, Views from the Front Porch. After that, EP sits down with Sue Steele, who is running for Troy City Council President. Finally, we highlight one of the artists participating in the upcoming Shifting Center exhibition at MPEC. This week, we highlight Egyptian musician and composer, Matrice Luca. Maurice Luca, yeah. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports a state Senate committee plans to investigate communications among competitive power ventures. The State Department of Environmental Conservation and former Governor Andrew M. Cuomo's administration to see if there was improper influence in determining whether the plant could be built. CPV operates a controversial gas power plant in Orange County. Former Governor Cuomo's top aide was found guilty of corruption in a case involving CPV. A court has allowed the plant to operate even though DEC rejected its final air permit. Nargis Mahamadi, a jailed Iranian women's rights advocate serving a 12-year sentence, has, has won the 2023 Nobel Peace Prize for her courageous struggle against the, the oppression of women in Iran and relentless fight for social reform. The board of the Samaritan Hospital and the Eddy Foundation, the fundraising arm of the hospital, has passed a resolution opposing the closing of the Burdett Birth Center. The board, which says it has been not consulted on the decision, hopes their position will prompt St. Peter's and its corporate parent, the Michigan-based Trinity Health, to reverse course. Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Brand's twice-postponed concert at MVP Center in downtown Albany has been rescheduled for April 15th. MVP Arena, that is. Mirza Hamid, the, quote, Banksy of Iran, is having an art show at the New Gallery at Basilica Hudson through October 29th. Um, the... Quote, the orig origin of all things contains paintings, photographs of street murals, and corresponding original drawings by the unknown Tehran-based street artist. End quote. The Times Union reports that retired Saratoga Springs police chief Gregory Veach, Gregory Veach repeatedly hedged Friday at the Darrow Mount Jr. at, at the Darrow Mount Jr. wrongful death trial. Through admitting he never launched an official, an official internal investigation into Mount's injuries while also suggesting he oversaw an informal probe. Veach admitted in a sworn deposition that he missed local reports about whether such an investigation was being conducted. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, 
or call 518-272-2390. On October 3rd at MPAC on the RPI campus, the League of Women Voters hosted a debate between the two candidates for Troy Mayer. Democratic nominee and current Rensselaer County legislator Nina Nichols and the Republican nominee and current president of the Troy City Council, Carmela Mantello, faced off with WTEN anchor uh, Lydia Kulbita serving as the moderator. Our excerpts begin with the candidate's opening statement, starting with Nina Nichols. I am Nina Nichols. I am a wife to an RPI graduate. Julia and I live just up the road on Burdett. I am the mother of three children who grew up in Troy, attended Troy schools, and are now in college. I have spent my life committed to community and public service and advocacy for what is good and right and just. The last 10 plus years, I've been at Unity House in development and advocacy, helping connect individuals, private foundations, and corporate donors to opportunities for making life better for people who are struggling. I've served on many local boards, most recently as the president of the Oakwood Community Center Board. I was on the Troy City Council in 2012 and successfully wrote or advanced legislation to improve the quality of life for our residents, support small businesses, and move us to being a greener and more sustainable Troy. I'm currently a Rensselaer County Legislator serving on the Veterans and Youth Committee, Health, Planning, and Tourism Committee. I am running for mayor because I love Troy, and I think it can be better. Thank you, Nina Nichols. And now, Carmela Mantello, opening statements. Most of you know me. You know I'm not a fancy talker. I tell it straight, and I speak frankly. So in the plainest possible language, these are a few things you should know about me and what I stand for. I love this city and its people with a passion. Troy is in my blood. I'm born and raised in North Central, grew up in the bird daughter of a Troy policeman. I gave birth to one of our sons at Burdett, and my husband Paul and I have raised our family here. I support our police, our firefighters, I oppose Sanctuary City, and I will not raise your taxes. The truth is, instead of a lot of talking, I prefer doing. When there's a problem, I don't sit behind my desk. I get out on the streets any time of the day or night. The removal of privately owned lead pipes that connect to city water mains is a critical public health issue. If elected, what would be your strategy to address the lead pipe issue? This past year, about seven months ago, the city council actually found out that a half million dollars was being sat on and not implemented to address the lead pipe issue here in the city of Troy. So the council, with the mayor, implemented a lead pipe replacement program. The council appropriated $3 million to date. We're five months into the program, about 80 homes have been rectified where we are replacing lead pipes. I am committed to a 25 to $30 million program. The mayor stated it'll take seven to 10 years. I am pledging tonight in my first term of office is if I win, we will have all lead pipes replaced within my first term. Candidate Nichols. 
So I also pledged to have the lead service lines replaced during my first term. Um, want to say that that money came to the city of Troy, um, not only during the Madden administration, but also during my opponent's tenure on the council. Um, that was a significant amount of money and obviously should have been utilized as quickly as possible for the very reason that it is such a public health um, issue and particularly for our youngest and most vulnerable Trojans. We could have looked to any number of other models considering every other municipality who received these funds managed to expend them quickly. And it's not an excuse that the actual cost for the program far exceeds the grant that we've got. That was the same issue that all of the other municipalities faced. And of course, the strategy now is to go for every available dollar there is to help us do that as fast as possible. So the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act has a significant amount, $55 billion of money that we should be going for, as well as state investments to do that. What priorities will be reflected and emphasized in your first budget? So um, I've talked about wanting to invest in every neighborhood, protect our families, and encourage economic growth and pipelines to jobs. To make this be a safer, cleaner, greener Troy for everyone who lives, learns, works, and plays here. We've been in an austerity budget where we haven't been investing in ourselves. And during that time, our city workforce has, is worse for the wear because of it. And because of that, so are our services. So in order to get to safer or cleaner or greener, we're gonna have to staff up and we're gonna have to look at the salary package that we offer our city workers. We have to be competitive with the private sector and right now you could get a job at McDonald's or Taco Bell and make more than what you could in some of the very hard jobs that we ask our staff to do. A particular department that I have already talked about being concerned with is our code enforcement department. We haven't had a director of code for a very, very long time. I would hire additional code inspectors that I would dedicate first to preserving our vacant buildings and attending to that, both in inventory and going after people who are letting their buildings become a demolition by neglect case study. I would dedicate the staff that it would take to run an effective residential occupancy program, recognizing that between our vacant buildings and our negligent landlords, that is a key way to invest in the public safety in our community. What priorities will be reflected and emphasized in your first budget? First and foremost, director of code, super important, but I'm so much different. I'm all about boots on the ground. We have over 40 vacancies right now in the city of Troy. That is abysmal. I was on site for two and a half days during the massive water main break, which lost five million gallons of water up in the berg. And I saw firsthand our DPU staff. They literally lost their DPU commissioner superintendent that Friday. On Monday or Tuesday, we had the water main break. The administration actually had an outside contractor all ready to go. Our DPU staff said, no, we're gonna show that we can do this in-house. That's an example of the people that work day in and day out in City Hall. But guess what? Their morale right now is horrible. They have over 40 vacancies. They're getting no supervision. They're getting no management, no leadership. I see it firsthand. You know what they tell us? 
We want to boost our morale. We want to go out there. We want a quality of life task force. But the mayor doesn't want to implement it. I will bring that leadership. I will bring that management. That's what I'm going to bring to the city of Detroit. Not just directors, boots on the ground. What is a city infrastructure project completed during the last four years that you think took too long and cost too much? And what would you have done differently? I guess the infrastructure improvements in our parks could have been invested more quickly. And I do think that we should make it a goal as a city to have the best parks and playgrounds in the capital region. People should know that when they come here, their families will be served by the opportunities to enjoy those spaces. So I look at the Geneva Pompeii Park that got a significant investment and major improvements and how that community is able to enjoy what's there our other parks deserve that kind of time and attention and opportunity. I do also want to say, um, recognizing that the questions come from, um, from all over Troy and people don't necessarily always have the information about what's going on in our city. Um, again, we just went through COVID. We had supply chain issues. We had workforce challenges, not just in the city of Troy, but by the people who were providing services. And so sometimes it's helpful to give context to our neighbors and our neighborhoods about why some projects are taking longer than we think they should. Candidate Mantello? First and foremost, when it comes to infrastructure, um, there is no wasted dollars. Infrastructure is key to not just economic development, but public safety, public health, you name it. We worked with the mayor to invest $40 million into our water main uh, to date. That is under budget. Our water extends from Tom Hannock all the way down to Scattahoke. But I'm very, very upset about our parts plan. The city council appropriated, we bonded three and a half years ago, $2 million. Another $2 million in ARPA. We are just seeing shovels in the ground. And contrary to what my opponent said, had nothing to do with COVID, et cetera. The designs were done three years ago. Those monies, they did not get into the ground quick enough. That was a little bit from the mayoral debate that took place on October 3rd. Thank you to Corinne Carey for the recording and Moses Nagel for the editing of this recap. Next, Mark Dunley reports on the push for Governor Hochul on the push to uh, Governor Hochul about including legislation in her upcoming state budget to make the Capitol and other state buildings in downtown Albany run on renewable energy. We're talking to Albany County Legislator Mert Simpson, who's also co-chair of SHARE, the Sheridan Hollow Alliance for Renewable Energy. And recently, about 120 community and labor organizations wrote a letter to Governor Hochul urging her in, the, in next year's budget uh, to include funding to move forward on the proposal to convert the uh, state capitol, Empire State Plaza, and other state buildings in downtown Albany uh, into 100% renewable energy and to shut down the um, power plant, steam plant on uh, Sheridan Hollow that is used to particularly heat and cool the uh, capital complex as well as other things. So, so Mert, why is this such a critical issue? Well, it, it, it's representative, uh, it, it, 
represents two of the major goals of the Sheridan Hollow Alliance for Renewable Energy. One is to you know eliminate the toxic threat that the Sheridan Avenue steam plant has posed for the neighborhoods that are surrounded, but also to make a, a contribution to uh, dealing with the climate crisis globally. Uh, and you know the Empire State Plaza and the surrounding buildings. The Renewable Capital Act would basically uh, decarbonize or make 100% renewable the energy in the the capital itself, the 98-acre Empire State Plaza, which houses a number of major buildings. You know, the I, I guess they were saying that the uh, buildings in the Empire State Plaza, one of them, the Corning Tower, is one of the largest buildings uh, in the state outside of New York City. Um, the Alfred E. Smith building is, is one of the third largest buildings outside of uh, New York City. The very large uh, education building, which is a model of its kind of architecture, and the State Museum uh, pose a, a really major footprint in the city of Albany in terms of uh, eliminating uh, the carbon threat and therefore making a major contribution to uh, global sustainability. So at this time when you know we see the existential nature of the climate crisis, I, I think they're reporting now that we're subject to the uh, winds from the fires in Canada, and not as much in Albany as in New York City, because if you look at a map, it's kind of like a 45 degree angle from Canada to New York City and, and Washington, which it does affect Albany, but we don't seem to get the direct blunt of it. But, you know, clearly when you look at all of the major, you know, thousand year catastrophes that we're having through global uh, climate change, this is no time to be moving slowly. Now, in this year's budget, the uh, state actually allocated uh, funding, I believe $30 million to uh, at least study the uh, decarbonation of the 15 largest uh, state-owned facilities that are, you know, emitting uh, greenhouse gases. Has as the state, at the, you know, what what is the state's commitment at this point to doing anything uh, in terms of decarbonizing the uh, Empire State Plaza Capital Complex? Well, it, it's what I always fear: is one step forward and two steps back. It's like uh, we we give a lot of lip service to you know our commitment, um, but you know it's much smaller footprint than we actually need. I mean, there's you know uh, looking at the Im impact on what's happening at, at SUNY Albany. Um, there's you know decarbonization uh, legislation in the pipeline for you know government buildings, but. You know, we need to be doing everything at once, and we we our steps are just too small. The fact that we don't even now have the Renewable Capital Act in place, when it's the seat of government itself um, that is uh, uh, contributing to pollution and and uh, climate change, is is problematic. Now, this facility in. Um... Sheridan Hollow, uh, Arbor Hill, has been operating for, you know, I guess, more than a, a century. You know, what are some of the problems that, uh, you know, local residents have um, cited over the years? And, you know, is this an environmental justice issue? It, it actually has formally uh, been declared uh, our area as an environmental justice area. 
since 1911, you know, the facility at Sheridan Avenue, 79 Sheridan Avenue, through, you know, coal, oil, garbage, and now frack gas has been causing, you know, major problems. You know, uh, my uh, sister-in-law uh, died from multiple myeloma from, we believe, from the plant. She was proximate to it. Her husband died from cancer. I myself just went to my oncologist because I'm being monitored for proteins that could lead to multiple myeloma. Um, and there are a, a large number of families that have multiple members with stage four cancer. And uh, there's still on a daily basis, uh, frack gas, you know, uh, emissions coming in that area with a large number of people of color living directly proximate to it. So it's it's a continual existential threat. We we did stop it from being made worse by the 2017 proposals of two frack gas turbines being added, but you know, uh, just a little bit less poison is not good enough. Now, how have uh, state lawmakers and the governor? I mean, this is you know this polls have been pushed for a couple of years. What's been the response so far from you know state lawmakers to actually finally shutting down this uh, Sheridan Avenue uh, steam plant facility? Well, our major local legislators, you know, uh, State Senator Neil Breslin, you know, Assemblywoman Kathy Fahey, and uh, Assemblyman uh, Assemblyman John McDonald have been uh, champions for the Renewable uh, Capital Act and have been spearheading it. But again, the fact that the governor has not been fully behind it, the fact that it hasn't been implemented in juxtaposition to the actual daily reality we're experiencing is just really, you know, malpractice. And, you know, we're hopeful that within the next two years we'll get, or less, we'll get something in place. But again, we're, we're moving against the clock and things get worse on, on a global and a local level daily. We really don't have time to be moving slow. Now, I remember a couple of years ago that um, yourself and, and, and some of the neighborhood groups in uh, Sheridan Hollow had approached the uh, New York Power Authority, which you know basically largely operates as a state facility there. And, and and talked about doing some type of a community benefit agreement because the state actually uh, did allocate in the budget $88 million um, to, to do some upgrades uh, in the neighborhood. How has that discussion about a community benefit agreement progressed with uh, NIPA and other state officials? Well, we, we haven't really had as much of a direct conversation with NIPA. What happened is, a number of community groups, you know, led by, you know, Arlene Way, who's um, the executive director of the Arbor Hill Development Corporation, have been discussing uh, for many months uh, last year uh, what would be some reasonable asks to remediate some of the damage from the uh, Sheridan Avenue steam plant to the local community. But we have not really engage in more full discussions with NIPA. However, you know, it obviously is the responsibility of the polluters to clean up the mess. And obviously, uh, this is a, a, a state government, you know, initiative as their responsibility to do more. Uh, and so we, we hope to, you know, initiate new conversations to, to make this uh, really happen. I mean, we need testing, uh, we, you know, we need treatment for some of the people who have been victims, but ultimately, right now, we need to stop the poisoning. 
So we have about a minute left. Uh, you know, what what is uh, Share Sheridan Hollow Lines Renewable Energy? You know, looking to do in the uh, coming year around this issue. Well, we hope to, you know, based in part on just the objective realities we face daily, uh, get our, you know, elected officials to not only implement the Renewable Capital Act, but to do, you know, everything on a statewide basis we can to decarbonize uh, and, and to save the planet for our, our children. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we've been talking with um, Mert Simpson, uh, Albany County Legislature in the Sheridan Hollow neighborhood and also uh, co-share or share. For more information, people can visit the uh, SHARE website at sharealbany.org, S-H-A-R-E, albany.org. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Jacob Boston. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. W-O-O-G-L-P 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany. And finally, streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And so we're joined now by... Rachel Lorimer and Justin Ralph. And so Jacob, you and I were at Oakwood Community Center last year and saw the beginning of this project, which is culminating now in this event that's upcoming, Views from the Front Porch, Community Celebration and Art Show. What do you remember about that show, Jacob? It was just a fun time with the community. It was a little bit ago. So the one thing that really stuck out to me is that everyone there was pretty cool. It was a good time kicking with my guys at Oakwood. I remember I took a picture with Santa. Yeah, well, so <laughs> there was these gorgeous house, front of the houses along the wall. Yeah. And I'd love for you each to introduce yourselves and to talk about what is this, the project um, that you've been working on for this last year. Okay. Um, my name is Justin Ralph. I am an artist and we're on a collaboration with the Oakwood Community Center and TRIP, which is the Troy Rehabilitation and Improvement Program. And I'm Rachel Lorimer. I'm a visual artist, and um, we work together, as Justin said, uh, within these two organizations and partnership between these two organizations. And our project has been to explore, um, you know, our individual and collective sort of sense of home and belonging and how you know, we relate to our sense of community as individuals and as a group over the past year. So um, the event that we were just speaking about that we were recalling was from Christmas time last year and the holidays. And that was sort of our kickoff. We called it the holiday showcase. And yes. it was a nice way to gather the community together and get get started with these ideas. Um, and since then, it was just kind of keep going. Yeah. So views from the front porch. Um, is a community listening project, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, we have been interviewing residents, uh, workers, different community members of different uh, types um, over the since April. So I think we've got about 40 yeah. people yeah. that we've interviewed. Um, 
in that span of residents and, you know, community leaders, those that work in the community. And we're just hearing their stories about the particular neighborhood, but also, you know, about home and belonging, you know, for themselves. So their particular stories, most people or some people um, transition here from other places and Mm -hmm. they found a home here in Troy and in Hillside North specifically or North Central. Um, So it's been really interesting Um, and touching to hear those stories. Uh, Furthermore, just to provide the community um, with the space to share, which which has been most valuable, um, in my opinion, just just being a listening ear uh, for the community. Mm -hmm. And we have, um, I mean, the value of stories and what we've heard, like it, it really is priceless, so. And you guys are very community-oriented. You do a lot of things to support your community. What do you think this specific event can bring to the community of Oakwood? Sure. So the event coming up is on October 21st. It runs from 5 to 7 at Oakwood Community Center. We will have a short program running from 6 to 6.30 within that um, time frame. And we're really hoping that it creates a... um, you know, a space for people to engage with what we have been hearing. So sometimes you carry your story with you for years. You don't realize that it might resonate with someone else or that it has um, connection to other people who live right down the street from you. And so to make the stories visible and to give an opportunity for people to have more conversations about how they got here, how it's going, um, what this area means to their families and there's the stability of, or instability of their families. Um, you know, so there, there's a lot wrapped up in it and We've been hearing lots of different themes emerge, some recurring themes, and we're hoping to present those uh, both with quotes um, made visual and visible to people, uh, artwork, as well as some um, spoken word performances as well. Mm. I know that Oakwood Community Center is just such a trusted community organization. Mm. And... uh, Uh, You just emphasize it by the fact that you're talking about listening and hearing. um, And I think there's there could be more of that in many organizations. Mm. Um, How do you feel like uh, neighbors have shown that Oakwood and your artwork is is a trusted space? Um, And uh, um, have you what kind of lessons have come through the work that you've been doing? Um, I'll take that if you want, Justin. I. What I'm finding is that sometimes there's reluctance when people sit down to talk. They're kind of curious about what we're doing, and they'll sit with us. They don't really know where it's going to go. But the questions we ask are not, they're not actually questions. We invite people to speak by, by asking things like, what's your vision for a future home? Or can you share something you remember from a past home? And so it opens up this space for them to be very... To, to A, lead the conversation where they feel comfortable taking it, which I think is very important to building trust and listening with people, especially people who you don't know or who don't know you as an individual. Um, but I think also just what we're finding is once people stop talking, they, they really don't want to stop. <laughs> and so that for, for us and throughout this project has been an indication that there's a need for people to communicate and share and, um, you know, your truth, your lived experience is not negotiable. It's, it's true. It's true for you. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and 
coming into a space where people acknowledge that you're not a, you're not right or wrong for having your own experience. And that is so validating and so welcoming. Um, and we try to cultivate that kind of space in our conversations and in, in the work that we're creating. So, yeah. Uh, a little bit ago, you touched on connecting the community. You said a little bit about that. I personally think that is a like a very important thing. I think a connected community can exponentially increase just the lives in general of everyone in that mm. community. So I really appreciate that part and the fact that the Oakwood Community Center has kind of been the place to get the community connected. Once again, I've only been there once, but I, being there, I've seen how everyone interacts with each other and how it's cool just to be there. Um, touching back on this event specifically, though, what are you guys most excited for that's going to be happening during this thing? I am most excited to see, um, so we're inviting all of those who have participated in the interview mm -hmm. process, along with, you know, come on out, come out. Everybody come. <laughs> Everybody come. <laughs> um, so I'm excited to see those that I, that we know we interviewed, mm. just kind of connect with some of the pieces and like kind of like find their story in a in a unique way um because i think it's very unique what rachel has done she's literally taken you know these spoken interviews or conversations and literally visualized and made them visible and so i'm excited to see people connect with the artwork mm. I'm excited because in addition to doing the interviews, we've had these story boxes out in the neighborhood. We've also done a lot of workshops with um, kids at school too, also through the Oakwood Techniques program over the past year. So we've additionally been working with youth. And while you can't sit down and interview, you know, a 10 year old with the same length and intensity that you can with grownups, um, they have a lot to share as well. And we've been trying to capture some of that uh, perspective and viewpoint, if you will, um, from the youth of the neighborhood in, a, in addition to just the adults. Um, so we're trying to capture a variety of age. And so I'm excited to see when, when children come into the space, what in these visual stories and representations do they identify with or, or what resonates with them? I'm kind of curious. So, yeah. Mm, I love that. Um, do you, is this project ending? Is the phase, the first phase ending? Um, I mean, we haven't even gotten to the end celebration, so <laughs> you might just need some time to like sit with it. But what is your feeling like? Is, is this continuing? Well, <laughs> this is actually, believe it or not, the, the, the beginning of another phase. Yeah. Um, so this celebration will conclude good, our good, interview, good. <laughs> our interview process, but it also is uh, start kicking off the process for um, a play. So we are taking um, storylines, themes, characters, perspectives from these interviews and from this past year of connecting with people and um, from that, using that as, as inspiration to write a play. And then do you want to speak to the timeline for that, Justin? Yeah, yeah. so that play is going to be happening um, May of 2024. So we've been on this journey for quite some time and, mm -hmm. and um, the project will culminate with that play in May of 2024. So we're going to be putting out um, casting calls, um, 
there are, I'm sure there are several people from the community that have skills that um, would like to be on display. And so mm -hmm. um, that information is <laughs> going to be coming out uh, very soon. So. Can I add another thing to that? We, mm -hmm. um, in, in doing this project, one of the things that's beautiful about it is identifying other creative individuals mm -hmm. through our work. And um, I just want to give a shout out to Miss Beverly Hickman. She is a very passionate and dedicated community member in this area and in Troy. And she actually has joined us as our third creative wheel to mm -hmm. be our key um, playwriter and play director. Yes. So it's it's amazing what, what strengths and talents you find in people. And they see that in themselves, they just may not have an outlet for it. And to also cultivate space where we can bring other people into the project is really key for us. Yeah. Mm. So I would love to keep talking to you. And I do <laughs> hope you'll come back. We've run out of time. But sure. I do want to give just a quick, quick opening if there's anything that we've left out and where we can find more information. Hmm. Well, right now, the best place to follow the progress of the project is on the Oakwood Community Center's Instagram and Facebook pages. Um, TRIP also has a website. Um, I believe it's triponline.org slash stories, and that will also be updated with information as the play develops. Yeah. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Justin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have Democratic candidate Sue Steele, who is running for Troy City Council president against Republican candidate Brad Lewis. Sue currently represents District 3 in Troy City Council, and Brad is a local engineer. Elizabeth E.P. Press sat down with Sue Steele in our studio for this interview. Today, we are talking to Sue Steele. She is running for Troy City Council president. My colleague Corinne Carey interviewed Sue Steele when she was running in June in the Democratic primary runoff for Troy City Council president Democratic ticket against Emily Men. Um, you won that race back in June, and now you are up against the Republican candidate for Troy City Council president, Brad Lewis. Sue Steele, welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. and. Thank you also for arranging these interviews. They're so important. Yeah, it's hard sometimes to find uh, information in any in-depth way on the candidates. So we really appreciate when candidates come in and take the time to talk to us for, for these 10 minutes or so. So thank you for sure. carving out that time sure. from your campaigning schedule. So I just wanted to start kind of real broad here, Sue. And I was wondering if you could talk about the role and responsibilities of Troy City Council in terms of the governance of Troy? Certainly. Uh, the City Council is the legislative branch of government. So when you're thinking about Congress, for instance, we, we are Congress. We are the uh, lawmaking branch, the policymaking branch of city government. We do not administer programs. We fund them through our fiduciary responsibilities by adopting the budget, amending the budget, uh, transferring funds here and there, but we are not the administrators of the services. I also like to think that as a city council person, I am a bridge to the administration sometimes when people are experiencing uh, issues in their neighborhoods that they can't resolve. That's the best part of the job, is when I can help someone accomplish what they want. 
Great. And if people don't know, Sue, right now you are on your second term as a Troy City Council person for District 3. Correct. If you win this position, you're one of the few that will be returning in the uh, next term. I'll be senior in more ways than one. Yes. (laughs) Funny. You have a grip on how things work there. You know, as I've been watching from the sidelines, how things operate in our city for the Hudson Mohawk magazine, the Troy City Council has a bit of a reputation of not really introducing legislation. It's mostly, if you read through most agendas, legislation is introduced on behalf of the administration. And that makes sense in many ways, shapes and forms. But what can the city council do Uh, In terms of this, is this a problem? And how can the city council, under your leadership, hold the administration accountable? Well, uh, good question. First of all, I would want to say that uh, should I be elected council president, I would like to see some of those things change. I would like to see us act as a more independent body. A lot of that will depend on who gets elected, and the makeup of the council. But I would love to see us work across party lines and develop uh, initiatives that are council-driven. It's very important for us to be a check and balance on the administration. There's no doubt about that. And obviously, some of those legislative pieces have to come from the administration. But I have a strong background legislatively. I was a the clerk of the county legislature, for instance. So I'm, I'm familiar with drafting legislation. That's not an issue for me. It's getting folks to work together. And, and that is what I feel I have a strong background in that as well, strong collaborative skills. So um, I'm looking forward to that. Having said that the city council doesn't much introduce legislation, the city council has been holding a series of hearings on Harbor Point, which is not a typical happening or business for the city council. There's been the lead, there's been, you know, distributing ARPA funds, there's uh, many vacant positions. But I'm just sort of curious, from your perspective, what is most important for the Troy City Council to focus on in the next term? Um, I just want to say that I was actually the council member who suggested that we invoke our subpoena powers and conduct these hearings to shed some light on the failures of of this particular system. And going forward, um, I would very much like to see us concentrate on code enforcement, residential occupancy program. We need to hold negligent and absentee landlords accountable. We aren't doing that now. Much of the reasoning is we don't have the the bandwidth. We do not have a uh, fully staffed workforce. And so I would look forward to working with the administration going forward, and certainly during this budget season, to invest in our workforce to be able to provide the services that our residents deserve. They pay taxes. They deserve to have their garbage picked up on a regular basis uh, without having to call to have their leaf bags picked up or, or something like that. I mean, that's may seem minor, but it isn't. Um, it's important to people. Uh, certainly, you mentioned lead. We need to be diligent in finding funding uh, so that we can fulfill our promise to replace all residential pipes that are lead free of charge to residents. 
I'm a strong believer in affordable housing. I chair the Troy Housing Authority. And so I think we need to look at diversifying our housing stock and making sure that we really are providing affordable housing, not just student housing or housing for those on the upper pay scale. So that's uh, something that I will always keep close to my heart and work towards. There's a lot. There's yeah. a lot in, lot to look forward to. Um, and it will be interesting going forward with an entirely new administration what direction we will be going and how we can work towards, hopefully, mutual success. Great. There's one thing that you said that I just want to circle back on, which is, you know, this particular administration spent a lot of time focusing on getting the city out of this huge debt. And in that, it seems that many positions were sacrificed in City Hall. Is that sort of like the general understanding from your perspective? And, you know, what will it take? Like, will we be back in debt if we start to fill in some of these positions? Or like, what's the best way forward in terms of like, getting code enforcement a director and these sorts of things that we hear about? It's, it's going to be a delicate balancing act. And it's going to take some uh, in-depth analysis financially to figure out how we can do this. Part of the issue is we're not paying our people enough. We're not competitive with other other municipalities. Uh, We cannot attract the best of the best. And folks are leaving our workforce because we're we're not up to par. So we're going to need to do a a salary analysis uh, to determine where we need to go in the future. Great. Uh, Sue Steele, you currently chair the council's public safety committee, and you have called for uh, a meeting on October 10th at 6 p.m. talking about our emergency response, body cameras, dashboard cameras. I I imagine this is sort of in response to the news that came out about the uh, fatal crash that took place on Husik and 15th Street where a police officer ran into Seba Aokawi. I was just wondering if you could talk a, a little bit about what the city needs to do in terms of building policies where we, you know, we have officers wearing body cameras for some years now, but there's still no policy related to that. So what do you hope to accomplish at this meeting and any thoughts you have on these things as the chair of the Public Safety Committee? Right. Thank you. Uh, First and foremost, what a horrible tragedy on so many levels. Um, And my heart goes out to the family and to the officer himself, because we don't know exactly what happened. We have reports Uh, We can draw conclusions from those reports, but again, they're only reports. Uh, The investigation is ongoing, and I look forward to that report from the state police uh, and from the state attorney general. I think that the public deserves the facts, and so what I hope to accomplish at the hearing is to uh, shed light on the policies that do govern speed of a a police officer, body cameras, cameras in the vehicles. What type of training do our police receive regarding these policies? And if, in fact, they uh, violate that policy, what is the 
repercussion, what, what will be the repercussions uh, for that. I think people um, need to live in a fact environment. And so my hope for this hearing is that we get the facts out on these policies. We create an understanding in the community. I think we want our residents to feel safe, not only safe from crime, but safe in the instance of a, of a police officer rushing to a scene of a crime. And so I think it will be helpful to, to bring out some information about these policies. Which is a bit of a uphill climb because as we read in the Times Union, Mayor Madden has for several months declined to respond to general questions about the sort of emergency response policies. So how do you glean information in this? You talk directly to police commissioners and such. I've invited the uh, mayor uh, the, and the three police chiefs to come. I imagine the city's corporation council will also be at the table. They're the ones who are most familiar with these policies and, and how they are um, carried out. So uh, it will be an opportunity for council members to question them about them and I'm hoping that there'll be an opportunity for the public to to respond after they've heard some of this information. As we have gone a bit over here, I'm curious, what, what do you really want our audience to know about you? Why should the people of Troy vote for Sue Steele for city council president? I think I'm the most qualified. I've spent my career in public service in both city, county, and state levels. I'm retired, so I have my time to commit to the city, and I really, really uh, enjoy the work that I do for the city, and I'd like to continue it in a leadership level. This interview with Sue Steele, candidate for Choice City Council President, is part of our Election Watch 2023 coverage. Find more interviews with local candidates on our website, mediasanctuary.org. Every week, we, or this is the second week, we are profiling artists who are part of the Shifting Center exhibition coming to MPAC. That will be at the end of October. And here we speak with Maurice Luca. Maurice Luca is an Egyptian musician and composer who's been commissioned for new work for Shifting Center, the show coming to MPAC. And he joins me now. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hello, thank you. It's great to be here. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your work? Um, I'm a musician and composer from Cairo, Egypt. What does mm. your work sound like? Where do you get your influences from? Oh, that's a difficult one. I mean, I, I do different things, different projects. Uh, it's always hard to kind of uh, very briefly describe something that would kind of briefly describe what I do, I would say it's mostly around experimental Arabic music with a very, very loose use of the word Arabic music, I would say. As I was listening to Bandcamp, there's a jazz, a lot of jazz influence, I would say. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, I, um, I wouldn't call myself a jazz guy, but definitely very, very much inspired and influenced by jazz music for sure. The term microtonality comes up in descriptions about your work. Can you explain what that is? This is a very kind of heated thing. So I, I would hate to, to say, you know, I probably won't give the exact uh, proper kind of academic or. And what do you mean by heated? Is it, is it, do people have different 
meanings for it? Or what do you mean by heated? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not different meanings, but it's like microtonality, especially now, it's really taking up a lot of the kind of debate in music. I mean, uh, for me, microtonality is basically like when you think of of the tempered scale and from Bach onwards, and especially in Western music where things, you know, the piano as, a, as the source, you know, instrument, but also like, you know, music for the last couple of hundred years. And um, a lot of it has been tempered and it's based on fixed scales. And microtonality is everything that's kind of anything that uses tones and notes throughout outside of this kind of of this realm of music let's say so you find microtonality in a lot of different cultures obviously musical cultures you would even find it in older european music is just at some point things got tempered like a lot of things you know just the music but like more like systematic and more like these are the notes and and obviously through that came a lot of harmony and a lot of you know this idea of trying to play with big orchestras and for everyone to sound kind of in tune whatever that really means in tune in the end so yeah so for me, microtonality is just anything that's outside that. You're from and currently residing in Cairo, and you also said in, in Berlin, ahead uh, of the the recording, your music is, there's a lot of brass and winds. So these sounds originated not from Troy, but you will be installing your work at MPAC in Troy. So how do you preserve these sounds and the roots um, when bringing your music and installing it in a different location. In this case in particular, the, the aim is the opposite. The aim is not to preserve it. The aim is for it to kind of have a come to life there, actually. Like, it's not too often that I get to do installation sort, sort of work. So for me, part of the appeal of it is that the composition will only fully come to life there. So there was a, while if you're doing records, for example, then you have, you know, most of it happens in the studio. You can have a bit of post-production. You kind of can more or less tell after the recording session, what it's going to be, what it sounds like. Uh, in this case, I don't know yet because I haven't installed it yet. And I'm leaving a big part of the composition to actually happen there. So it's like uh, it's composed work, but the room and the sound installation and reacting to the objects in the room will give it a completely different life. So for me, uh, I, I, it's not about preserving, but it's more about it having kind of flourishing there, let's say, in the best scenario, is that whatever I did, when I bring it there, it works and actually you know, has another life there. So in that way, the piece can never be duplicated because it sounds differently in each location? This one particularly, yes. I mean, this one, I, I kept in mind a lot uh, the context, you know, the, the, the room, the speaker setup, the, um, the objects. So, for example, something like the structure of the piece and uh, how much silence we're going to use in the piece. Like all these things are things that we're going to work with while we're there. So what else can you tell us about the installation? What is your thought on what the installation is going to be like? So things are going to be moving around the room, I think. Like it's not always going to come out from the same source. And and this is something that I'm really looking forward to do while I'm there. I obviously have some ideas, but I don't think we can tell until we're there and see how everything sounds. Um, so that's in terms of, of installing the, the, the work. The work itself came out of conversations with Nida Raus, one of the curators of Shifting Center, of course. And um, so the work was definitely inspired by conversations with Nida. And for me, it's a collaboration with Nida because I think this piece would not have come without her direction in a way, like at least direction and thoughts and inspirations and ideas. Like she really set the, the kind of the ground for me to kind of be inspired and come up with this piece. And um, so that's initially uh, the initial spark for the work, let's say. 
And then once the music started to kind of form, I kind of started having ideas of who I wanted to play on it. And the, then the writing of the piece, the recording of the piece, and we're still here. Like, uh, hopefully next week we install it. So we're halfway there, let's say. What do you hope that a visitor takes away from your work? For me, it's a very site-specific work. So I guess what I'm hoping is for when people walk into the room, it's an intriguing and inspiring piece, but that it's also part of Shifting Center as a whole. And this is something that we've discussed a lot with Nida and Vic. So I guess harmony uh, is one of them, like within the context of it. Like I, and but at the same time, obviously, I wanted to also, like, I guess two contradictory things, like a harmonious and also jarring, not jarring in a kind of intense way, but also like I also don't want it to be... Um, Maybe come back to this. Do you have any other questions or that's the last one? I do have another question. Um, so since you mentioned that your work is experimental Arabic music, what are the important elements of Arabic music? I, know, I don't think that they, need, they need to know anything. I think being kind of, um, I think music works in a different way. I think it either hits you or not. And especially like, I, and I, I notice this all the time, like with something like microtonality, some people are more kind of intrigued by it or predisposed to getting an, an emotional effect from it. And some other people are just jarring and sounds out of tune. And there's nothing you can tell someone that will make him change how he emotionally reacts to it or any other kind of music. I think there's underexposure of Arabic music in, in the Western world, not just Arabic, but I think music outside the Western hemisphere, but that's changing. I think more and more so, at least in my time, which is, you know, I'm not that old, but I already have seen a, a big difference in the last 10, 15 years about exposure to different kinds of music you know people in the west hemisphere being for different kind of music so yeah i mean i would you know recommend just Arabic music i would recommend you know i think there's, there's so much out there and again i mean i use the word Arabic music very loosely i don't think anyone would kind of like it's i'm not a good ambassador or a clear reference for that i mean and i, and I think that's a positive thing because i think it's also a very in itself very loose term what is Arabic music you know Obviously, it's a big, big one, but, you know, if, if people would listen to what I do and like it and then be like, oh, okay, let's check out what else is happening there, you know, that's, for me, is already a big thing, I guess. I'm not saying that's necessarily the aim of, for what I do, but, uh, I mean, maybe, this go back to the question of the audience taking something from the, from the work, maybe part of it is that. Different sounds, different feelings. Different sounds, different feelings, yeah. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you, Maurice Luca. And what would you like to leave Thank our you, listeners Sina. with? I guess I always struggle with these kind of questions. Um, no, I mean, I, I hope people end up at the show. And I hope, uh, again, like you said, I think you said it very articulately. I think they, I hope they leave with intrigue. And I hope they feel something. I hope the work, I think it is emotional work in some way. And I hope they, they yeah, I hope it leaves them with something. And curiosity is definitely one, and I think a big one. And, and yeah, I mean, for me, it would be, be very touched if the work would make people more curious about what I do, obviously. And uh, and maybe, yeah, on a broader term, the music scene I come from. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you, Sina. That was Maurice Luca, an artist exhibiting in Shifting Center, coming to MPEC. We previously interviewed Beatriz Cortez, for whom we will be holding a welcoming reception at the, sanctuary for, at the sanctuary for her volcano sculpture, part of the Shifting Center on October 29th. Learn more and hear the interview at mediasanctuary.org. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Jacob Boston. Our engineer is Sina. Thank you. Contributing volunteers to today's episode are Moses Nagel, Corinne Carey, Mark Dunley, 
Elizabeth E.P. Press, and Jacob Boston. And we appreciate all of you listening. Until next time.